Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Exchange podcast. I'm Rai Wake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast series of short, digestible episodes is intended for healthcare providers and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I will be interviewing experts about timely and timeless topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical care, sleep, infectious disease, and related disciplines. We will share information that will help you take better care of your patients today, as well as the patients of tomorrow. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, welcome to this edition of Respiratory Exchange. I'm your guest host today, Daniel Culver. I'm the chair of the Department of Pulmonary Medicine at Cleveland Clinic. Today we'll be discussing fibrosing mediastinitis. I have two guests with me today. Dr. Francisco Almeida, who's the head of the fibrosing mediastinitis program and an interventional pulmonologist at Cleveland Clinic, and Dr. Atul Mehta, who is the section head of general pulmonary medicine and one of the leaders in bronchoscopy. Welcome. Hello, Dan. Great to be here talking to you today. Hello, Dan. Looking forward. So, Francisco... Tell us a little bit about fibrosing mediastinitis. How is it defined and what causes it? Well, fibrosing mediastinitis is a, as we understand it, mostly a CD20 driven inflammatory reaction in the chest that leads to this exuberant reaction and fibrotic or fibrosis development. This um, process of fibrosis ends up leading to such a, a reaction or buildup in the chest that leads to compression of uh, neighboring structures within the mediastinum or hilar structures. You know, as, as we know, pulmonary artery, pulmonary veins, the SVC, you know, it can compress the esophagus and then the airways, you know, at the... Uh, main airway uh, level or lobar or segmental level. So that's sort of what what that is. So in the U.S., I suppose the main cause is still histoplasmosis? Correct. In the U.S., it is believed histoplasmosis infection is the most common cause. And as you know, one of the main places are among or near the Mississippi and Ohio Valley rivers near us. Also in the southeastern U.S. and the mid-Atlantic. So those are the, the top places. But it's not the only cause. There are other many, many other causes. You know, many fungal infections can lead to fibrosis mediastinitis, this fibrotic uh, reaction. TB is another cause, not very common in the U.S. IgG4-related conditions also may play a role. Uh, radiation sometimes can cause it, sarcoidosis, SLE, ankle-related vasculitis. So there are numerous causes out there that can lead to fibrosing mediastinitis. So it seems like sometimes the fibrosing mediastinitis patients that I've seen have presented quite late, and they often have very severe disease. So what is it about the presentation of fibrosing mediastinitis that makes it so challenging for clinicians to diagnose and why we see it so late? Atul? 
Dan, yeah, that's that's a very interesting situation, as you mentioned in the beginning. Fibrosing mediastinitis, in my opinion, is very much under-recognized because when patients have shortness of breath, they suspect that that is because of asthma or COPD, and those symptoms are overlooked, and we are not thinking that this could be fibrosing mediastinitis. Very often, you know, the X-ray findings are so non-discriminatory and they are non-specific and hence the diagnosis is not pointed out and hence I don't think it's a difficult diagnosis to make but it is overlooked for a long period of time until somebody is referred to the pulmonary department or general pulmonary medicine areas and somebody suspects it so I think it is more under recognition than difficulty in making the diagnosis. Once you recognize it, once you suspect it, I don't think it is that difficult to make the diagnosis. Of course, there are a lot of mediastinal processes that we see on CT scanning. Is it a radiographic diagnosis or a physiologic diagnosis or an endobronchial diagnosis? How would you confirm the diagnosis versus just seeing something that looks like an extensive mediastinal process? Yeah, so I just wanted to add to Dr. Mehta's comment, you know, also, it's under-recognized at first because sometimes patients have no symptoms. You know, it grows very slowly. Some have said that it may grow about one millimeter a year or so, but I'm not sure there's enough evidence to, to say that that is of a fact. But historically, that seems to be close to the truth. Radiographically, when you have a CAT scan, you can make a diagnosis in the majority of patients. Yet, we see a number of patients that come to us, and I hear patients coming in and say, doctor, I came here to see you because I have a lymphoma. Hey, why, why, why are you saying you have a lymphoma? Yeah, because I have this mediastinal mass. Or, you know, sometimes they say with a different, different wording, but it's, it's funny, like I look at the CT, and even before I collect the history, and I tell, let me show you the CT, you do not have lymphoma. This is a classic appearance of a condition called fibrosomediastinitis. Of course, sometimes lymphoma is in the differential. We all had lymphoma a few times in medical school, didn't we? <laughs> oh, <laughs> we do. It's like when I was in medical school back in Brazil. It's funny, uh, our mentors used to say, if you're not paying attention and somebody asks you, what do you think this is? Just say lymphoma or TB. You're never wrong. <laughs> so it seems like there are many pathways for patients to come in to see us, and often there's a misdiagnosis. What kinds of therapeutic and diagnostic testing have you seen commonly done before patients come to see you, and uh, which ones of those have been the most useful for making the diagnosis or for treatment? Yes, it's a good question, Dan. I think that technological advancement in all different subspecialties have brought up this whole field of fibrosing mediastinitis. As I always say that we are doing more and more CT scans of the chest. So that is the first step. That's where we consider or we recognize that this may be a fibrotic process involving the mediastinum. So that is number one we have tremendous you know growth or technological advancement in interventional radiology 
So these individual specialists can diagnose obstruction of the mediastinal structure, such as, you know, vascular obstruction, superior vena cava obstruction, and collateral formation. And so Francisco's field, interventional pulmonology, you know, we are seeing lots of patients with fibrosing mediastinitis related endobronchial findings, not only bronchiolitis or airway obstruction, but increased vascularity and hemoptysis and so on and so forth. So combination of looking at the CT scans, doing the bronchoscopies, and taking the help of interventional radiologists, you know, it's a team approach that we can diagnose these conditions very easily these days. Yeah, to add to that, the, when patients come to us, not infrequently, patients have a, an invasive procedure, whether that's uh, EBUS, TBNA, sampling of the lesion, that um, the findings not infrequently outside are non-diagnostic. And we have those slides review here, uh, reviewed here, and our pathologists can see some changes that are consistent. We even have some patients at times that have had a mediastinoscopy or a thoracotomy, a VATS biopsy of a lesion here. And obviously that's clearly diagnostic in virtually 100% of the cases, but most patients do not need such procedure to make a diagnosis. And sometimes they have a CT guided biopsy. Rarely we see patients that may have an EUS FNA of a lesion near the esophagus. So all these procedures can eventually confirm a diagnosis that we're not sure. But as we mentioned before, most, most patients do not need an invasive test to confirm a diagnosis. That, that, that diagnosis is done just radiographically, especially if you see, as Dr. Mata mentioned, patients have a CT, you know, so there's that more CTs are being done out there. So if they have classic findings for histoplasmosis, such as calcification in the liver or the spleen, you know, certain calcified nodules. So that combination, that constellation, along with the patient living in an area that we know histoplasma is endemic, that's all you need. So when you see a patient in the community and you see that constellation of findings, very rarely a physician needs to get an invasive test. But it is helpful at times, and it is needed at times when we can't, as we mentioned before, uh, when lymphoma is in the differential or a few of these other conditions, sometimes biopsy is necessary. I'm curious how often you see the sorts of tests that are done to exclude active infection being helpful. Often you see fungal serologies and histourine antigen and of course, stains and cultures of any kind of biopsy samples. And I suppose that that's important for completeness sake. But once you see that real fibrosing mediastinitis picture radiographically and you see the physiology of that, how often do you actually find an active infection in your practice? It's very rare to find something active. But sometimes those tests are kind of when the, the, the radiological picture is not classic, is not, you know, clear cut, those tests may help us kind of, okay, so now we have a histoplasma antigen or urine antigen is positive along with those findings. This is most likely fibrosis mediastinitis, but finding an active infection is very rare. And it's not uncommon that we see patients here that come being treated for an active infection. 
when clearly is not present. And, but it is difficult. You know, I, I don't blame, you know, the physicians that see this condition that there are somewhat limited options in terms of treatment uh, until a few years ago and uh, try to do something. That's our reaction of doctors. You know, we want to do something. And historically, many people have tried to treat these patients with antifungals uh, with little benefit, unfortunately. So I know I don't blame people, as I said, uh, to try. But for the most part, it, it's, it doesn't provide any, any benefit. I, I, I agree with what Francisco is stating. Uh, at this point, I remember my professor, he used to say that old x-rays is a gold mine. So when you suspect fibrosing mediastinitis and you try to go back as much as you can and look at the old films, and if there is histoplasmosis, you'll see the telltale sign that this is going on for several years. Under those circumstances, doing histoantigen is not going to be beneficial. You know, this is, you may have histoserology positive, this is more or less all the blood tests and serologies. What we do is to, for the completion of the workup, rather than making a diagnosis in this situation. You know, I do tend to treat my patients with antifungals irrespective because most of them are coming from histobelt. And I also treat them with steroids, uh, but that doesn't mean uh, that I know that these patients do not have active infection. This is just for my own satisfaction and to, you know, cross all the T's and dot all the I's, we do that. Maybe there is one or two organisms alive in patients coming from histobelt. That is the reason I do that. So we don't really know that there is a big role for antifungal therapy. Absolutely. It has never been proven that antifungal treatment or even steroids do any benefit to these patients. So I'm curious about other sorts of treatments. And and you have both seen a number of patients come in who have had endobronchial procedures, stent placements, lasers, various intravascular procedures, what are the indications for those, and how helpful are those in general? It's a great question, Dan. I think we are moving towards a multidisciplinary approach to these patients because putting a stent, as you know, in, in a vessel is, for the most part, permanent. Putting a stent in the airway can be temporary. Most of these stents can be removed, so sometimes that's necessary. But as you know, uh, airway stents are rarely a definitive treatment for any airway stenosis just because of the many side effects and complications related to it. And even those vascular stents often occlude because that fibrotic tissue often keeps growing and compressing that vessel. So we not infrequently see some of those stents placed that end up being occluded later down the line. So, more recently, uh, some have used monoclonal antibody drug known as rituximab that works against CD20 B cells to try to halt or, uh, you know, stop that inflammation altogether. And some patients will respond. Some data shows that uh, two-thirds or more patients will either decrease the size of their lesions or get stabilized 
you know, stop the growth. So the question is, when you see a patient that is severely symptomatic from airway occlusion or vascular occlusion or esophageal occlusion, should you wait for the, that drug to kick in and try to see if it shrinks? Or should you put a stent or dilate one of these structures that are occluded or narrowed? And we don't know the answer to that question. So that's why I think a multidisciplinary approach, having a bunch of people discuss from all these fields is extremely important to say, hey, maybe we should temporarily stent this patient because this is, you know, too severe right now. We may, we should probably not risk uh, waiting until that drug works. And there are the huddles that we need to go through because it's not an FDA drug for the treatment of fibrosis mediastinitis. But sometimes, you know, the patient is not that symptomatic. You know, maybe we can give the drug now. So this is really a discussion between physicians that care for these patients from various specialties with the patient, the family, discussing the pros and cons. So the timing right now, based on the limited data of what you do first, is not known, if that answers your question. No, I, I think that you point out the complexity and really one of the things you highlighted is the importance of the multidisciplinary approach. And I wonder if you can share a little bit about the organization of the multidisciplinary approach in your program. Who's at the table? How do you bring them in? How do they interact? And what have you seen the benefit of that being? So yeah, we were just in the process of starting that. So we have uh, many, uh, many specialties on the table you know, pulmonologists, I and Dr. Mehta and our team uh, around us. We have a pulmonary hypertension, also pulmonologist doctor that helps us with when the pulmonary artery is compressed and there's pulmonary hypertension playing a role as well. We have a couple of thoracic surgeons that are there to help and give their opinion on potentially resectable cases interventional radiologists that looks at, you know, certain, the overall radiographic picture and compression of vessels and airways and their opinion related to that. An interventional cardiologist who also deals with some of the therapeutic uh, interventions for vascular structures, pulmonary veins, for example, and infectious disease doctors. So we have this team approach that we're kind of brainstorming uh, when we see new patients or even patients that we're seeing for a while that we are just observing. So we want to readdress. So should we readdress what we discussed before? So we have this team approach that sometimes the patient doesn't need to see each one of them, but for the patient, it's like they're getting all these second opinions and additional consultations without having to go through all those appointments. So the team is increasingly working very well together. This is like, you know, uh, a classic Cleveland Clinic thing is the team approach. We work well together as a team. And this is another example that I think we, we're still in the work of perfecting our, our work. But I think we're, we're pretty, almost there on that perfection of a team approach. And I think we'll get better in terms of brownstorming ideas for not only treatment, but hopefully future 
investigations, research in this area. So it's it's been really a short road since we started this program, but is it's coming out nicely, and we we're getting there. Atul, you've you've seen this team in action. What other thoughts on it? Yeah. Uh, it's it's the team is very well formed actually. Just because of the COVID situation, we work virtually and more with the emails and telephones. Uh, but eventually, we will be having our own conferences and, and uh, meetings together. The team is coming along extremely well, as Francisco mentioned. Everybody is extremely interested. This is an old disease with a new recognition, and everybody realizes this. You know, before the CT scans, we never suspected this disease. And now with all the CT scans, we recognize it and everybody's using the CT scans and they come up with this diagnosis. I tell you that, interestingly, a couple times I have suspected the disease on the bronchoscopic findings. The patient comes with a mediastinal mass and patient has got typical endobronchial features, uh, which, which, are? We, uh, which are increased vascularity because of the obstruction of the bronchial vessels you see that there is a neovascularization within the endobronchial tree, which we have very well described many years ago. We were probably the first one to describe these findings in fibrosing mediastinitis. And these patients come to us with hemoptysis, and Francisco and his team, you know, use argon plasma coagulation to take care of these things. And some of these patients may even come for EBUS DBNA, of the mediastinal mass, which turns out to be fibrosing mediastinitis. So the teamwork between the pulmonologist and interventional pulmonologists and radiologist is working out extremely well. To be, uh, you know, I, I do uh, want to bring out a couple cases we have done with our interventional radiology team, a stent in the superior vena cava on a young gentleman, 40 some years old. It has been working out extremely well for the last three years and similar situation in a young woman from uh, histobelt that we have treated with dual stenting in this particular situation. And as Francisco mentioned, a lot needs to be done uh, in terms of preventing further complications of these permanent stents. Let me simple question, should I leave these patients on lifelong anticoagulation after putting the vascular stents, considering the complications of these medications? So there is a lot to learn, but again, coming back to your question about multidisciplinary team approach, it is working out extremely well. It reminds me of the old paradigm of oculostenotic reflex that we used to think about in the early days of interventional cardiology. And I think, you know, one of the things that we've seen over the years is knowing when not to put a device in a patient is perhaps even more important Absolutely. than knowing how to put the device in. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, as you talk about not doing something, it's, it's important to to remind you know the physicians out there seeing these patients, as Dr. Mehta pointed out, the hypervascularity of the airways. These are, are not clear-cut procedures to do. When you think about, oh, I'm going to do a bronch and do an EBUS CBNA or look at yeah. that stenosis or dilate that, those patients often bleed significantly just with a little needle or even with a dilation that seems simple. So if you do not have the experience to deal with those significant bleeds, you know, have the experience of uh, the tools available as argon plasma coagulation or laser or electrocautery and experience in using those, those can be very challenging procedures. 
So you need somebody who is experienced in doing bronchoscopy, somebody who is experienced using those tools. You need an experienced team with you, an anesthesiologist for the airway management, and you need to have the support available in case these patients need to go down to interventional radiology right away if the bleeding doesn't stop. So it's a, it's a, it's a complex situation when you decide to do a procedure on those patients. So if you don't have that multidisciplinary team available sometimes immediately, you should uh, rethink about doing procedures on these patients. It's like many things in life. The more you learn, the more you see the, the complexity. Correct. I want to draw you out a little bit more, Francisco, on something that you mentioned, which is now the hot treatment, and that's rituximab. Can you tell me a little bit more about what we've seen with rituximab and where do you see that going and do you see it changing really the course of the disease? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, we have seen a number of patients in the recent past that rituximab really changes their lives. I had a recent young patient who was in the ICU we gave a first dose while the patient was in the hospital, a second dose as an outpatient. And I see this patient now entirely asymptomatic, living their lives to the fullest. So it's a game changer. The main thing is, is it a game changer to everyone? And unfortunately, the answer is no. Some patients don't respond. And it may be because Maybe not all patients are entirely driven by CD20 B-cell lymphocytes. Uh, a recent study suggested that there is a row of CD4-positive T-cells also in the inflammation and fibrosis mediastinitis related to histoplasma. So maybe depending on the condition, there is some other physiopathology related to how the the fibrotic reaction develops. And I'm hopeful that as we grow the program, see more patients, we can eventually get together with our translational researchers and start investigating further what are the other potential biomarkers or physiopathogenesis of this disease that we can target with different drugs for the non-responders or eventually find different drugs that, oh, so this patient is not a responder to rituximab even before we treat. I think there's quite a ways to get there, but I think that should be the, the goal of this relatively uncommon procedure, but it has a tremendous impact on the quality of life of the patients who have it and their families. I, I think that getting together concentrated expertise in one program is really the key to making those sorts of advances and thinking about the patient holistically and what questions there are really will move the field forward. As we wrap up, I wanted to ask you one more question, a tool, and that is when nothing else is working, sometimes the patients appear in front of the lung transplant team. Is transplantation ever a viable option for people with fibrosing mediastinitis? This is an excellent question. Um, this is more a surgical question than a medical question because there is so much fibrosis in these patients that exploration and anastomosis could be very challenging. 
we have had few patients who have undergone lung transplantation for radiation fibrosis and radiation-related fibrosing mediastinitis, and those cases are very challenging. So answer to that question would be that it is all individualized. We look at every patient's CT scan of the chest. We review this thing thoroughly with our surgeons. If single lung is possible versus double lung is possible versus even doing a heart lung transplantation, but this is indeed a challenging operation. Another thing is this, you got to realize that these patients are much, much younger than the patients who usually undergo lung transplantation for, let's say, ILD or even emphysema. Most of these patients undergoing lung transplantation for fibrosis involving the mediastinum. And more of these patients are radiation-related thing than truly fibrosing mediastinitis. It's very, very difficult to do transplants in these patients or justify them for transplant because the lungs are functioning fine. If you look at their oxygenation, you know, is, is okay. Their DLCO is normal in the situation. So this is more or less a surgical scenario or surgical question than a medical question. And decisions are made on individual basis. So again, coming down to volume of the center and, and expertise and experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is true. So I'd like to get one final word what message would you like to leave for clinicians as they think about diagnosis and approach to patients that they suspect of having fibrosing mediastinitis? Atul, one final word. One final word is fibrosing mediastinitis is under-recognized. Pay attention to the CT scan of the chest. And we do have several palliative modalities to help the welfare of patients with fibrosing mediastinitis. Thank you. Francisco, one final word. Yeah, one final word is don't give up on your patients. There are some options for them and seek help. If you need the help, uh, reach out to our team. We're, we're here to, to help your patient, either you know from a consultation or sending the patient over for us to, to work with, with you and the patient. So don't give up on them because I, I see a lot of um, a pessimistic approach sometimes when patients come to me from the patients, you know, that they heard from their doctors. But let's give them hope. I think there is hope. So let's work together to take care of them. Thank you. Thank you all for listening today. This is Dan Culver. I've been just chatting with Drs. Almeida and Meta. Thank you for joining us for Respiratory Exchange. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange podcast. For more stories and information from the Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow me on Twitter at tryedwakemd.